And now we're with Canadian academic and author Max Forte. He's the editor of Zero Anthropology and the writer of Slouching Towards Cert. Max, thanks very much for joining us on the program today. Uh, thank you very much, Brendan, for having me again. It is a relief to get a hold of you. Um, I know you're on sabbatical right now, and you are nonetheless contributing articles uh, for Canadians and for the rest of the world. Uh, the latest one has made the rounds. I got it sent to me by various people. I saw people I know commenting on it. It's been on Facebook and elsewhere. It's called Syria, the new terra nullius, uh, and it challenges the lousy way that Syria has been approached by nearly everyone. Um, I got to thank you for writing this, Max. You know, back in 2013, the Taylor Report conducted an interview about how the United States reshapes the whole Middle East and North Africa region in its own interests. That interview was called NATO Maneuvers and Countries of Clay. Reading your article reminds me of that title uh, and the general message contained therein. Um, uh, the country Syria has become a sort of canvas for people, as you've noted, uh, left-wing, right-wing, religious and secular. It's this canvas upon which they can project their hopes and dreams onto from abroad. So in other words, it's become everything to everyone. And one of the main things that that tramples over is Syria's sovereignty. We're dealing with a lot of fantasies here, but if we want to look at the reality of the country, one of those is the destructiveness of this neo-colonization effort, neo-colonialism that's being brought forth by globalization, this liberal globalization in which national sovereignty is no longer allowed. So as you pointed out, there was no debate over sending troops and planes to Syria. It was just done. Syrians didn't get a say, obviously. And now NATO members and Israel bombed the country at will. But if Syria invites a country like Iran or Russia to help out with this conflict, as it has the right to do as the nation-state entity, we treat those forces that the Syrians have invited as if they're illegitimate. So what I'm getting a sense of from your article then is that if the United States decides to delegitimize a government, uh, we're all just supposed to go along with it as if it's no longer sovereign on its own territory. Is that, is that how it works? No, that's exactly right. The idea is that we're supposed to accept uh, a certain idea as if it were a fact, as if it were already established, as if it already existed. And that idea is that we live in a basically homogenized world. Uh, Syria is the name of what once was a place but is no longer a distinctive place. It has been assimilated and amalgamated into this order in which we all inevitably belong, whether we like it or not. So it's both inevitable and it's irreversible. And this is one of the sort of repeated claims that we've heard over the last few years, especially over the last couple of years, is the notion that globalization is irreversible. You know, it's permanent and it's inevitable. Um, and to me, that also sounds like it's also superhuman, uh, mythical, maybe magical, because nothing that has ever been created by human beings could ever be described as being permanent or inevitable or irreversible. Uh, things can certainly be undone, and they can certainly be broken. And they wouldn't be reacting, that is, the defenders of what was imagined to be this 
liberal global order wouldn't be reacting these days with such extreme and intense panic if they really genuinely believed that their system is, you know, permanent, inevitable, and irreversible. So that's what I was concerned about. I was concerned about Oh, and by the way, all of this applies as much to the United States as it does to Syria, because the U.S. that we're talking about, for example, in this interview, isn't so much the nation uh, of the United States. It's a particular kind of apparatus, uh, a system of tools or, or an arrangement of tools, financial, legal, military, and political uh, that govern the country, but are also meant to govern the world on the behalf of a particular on behalf of a particular class. Um, what I was concerned about is, you know, that Syria is not allowed to be Syria for Syrians. It's meant always meant to be something else, something other than itself. It always is called upon to prove itself not just Syria, but virtually every other country, called upon to prove itself to be something that we wish it to be, uh, rather than what it is. What it is is somehow, uh, for any number of reasons, unacceptable to us, and Syria is somehow answerable to us now. Uh, so that is the main thrust of, of, of what I was writing. Certainly, in the past few years, the way that not only the corporate media, but also academics and so-called leftists and so on have treated Syria is as if it is a terra nullius, uh, as you point out. It's, an, it's no one's land. It doesn't belong to anyone. And therefore, we can project our fantasies upon it. Um, I guess there's been a number of fantasies that have been projected onto Syria. The, the most dominant one that's promulgated by the corporate media, the Pentagon, and so on, is that Syria is this land that's dominated by this brutal dictator. He's this tin pot dictator. He's, he's a monster. He's a madman. He's the chair of a regime. And the Syrians are helpless children for the most part, who need our, our help. They need our weapons from outside for those who will fight, but they need a no-fly zone. They need intervention. So that's one fantasy. And then there have been left groups saying, well, you know, there's a left-wing revolution. There's a Marxist revolution, or the workers and peasants of Syria are rising up. They're rising up against the demonic regime uh, and apparatus. So, so there's those fantasies. Uh, it seems to me that your article is right in pinning down that People from outside Syria have emptied the country of its content, its political content, its history, its inhabitants, and just created the space by which history can proceed the way they want it to, whether it be towards this, this imaginary socialist revolution there or towards the, the flat neoliberal world and then Syria's incorporation into it, I guess. Yes, that's right. Um, you know, this kind of projection, well, it's a number of processes that occur together at the same time. And these are almost standard processes that you see operating in the foreign policy field here in what we can call the, the quote-unquote West. And it's, you know, projection, uh, misdirection, and deflection. All three uh, work together. I mean, you can find instances where it's just one that's operating. But this idea that, you know, we're going to project something onto Syria, why would you do that? Why would you project a fantasy onto Syria? Is it because, you know, you're an, uh, basically a ludicrous and absurd thinker uh, who's lost in his dreams? Well, it might be that, but usually 
the real uh, principle at work here is that you're projecting so as to make room for an investment, you know, and you want to remove impediments to that investment. And the impediments to that investment are anything that is local, uh, that is part of the local reality, and that stands at odds with the kind of investment that you want to make. So you want to make a political investment, that would be to recreate Syria as a kind of liberal democracy. For some, it's not about recreating Syria as a liberal democracy, as you know. For some, it's about recreating it as, you know, part of the Islamic caliphate or something like that. Everybody is involved in, in, in a projection of one sort or another. Others see it as a kind of second Spanish civil war, and they are making an investment there, too. They're using Syria as a way of enhancing their own importance and their own value at home, you know, back in the United States or back in, in, in Europe. Uh, Syria is, is used as a tool to enhance their own status, to enhance their importance, precisely because they lack it at home. You know, they're marginal at home. Uh, they're not taken into account as much at home. Syria and places like it becomes a way of, of adding or increasing your value. So that is the main reason why these fantasies uh, are projected. They're always about extraction and about, you know, accumulating value and in some cases literally accumulating capital. Sorry, you you were saying. Oh, well, there seems to be some incongruity here. Uh, this is something you would be familiar with as an academic. Um, within the university environment, there's a climate of great sensitivity now towards racism, sexism, other forms of discrimination. And the last thing you want to do is say something colonial, make a colonial remark and perpetuate a white settler way of thinking. Uh, on these campuses. And yet, the way Syria has been addressed on university campuses by most uh, student groups of various stripes is to delegitimize and demonize the experience of Syrians themselves. You have, for example, people unconsciously adopting the rhetoric of empire to refer to the Syrian government as the regime, the Syrian regime, um, or they call the whole country Assad. And Assad has done this. We have to get rid of Assad. As if the government of Syria and all the services therein and all its branches are one man, Assad, who Syrians want to get rid of, which is not the case, but we project that upon Syrians. So it seems to me that there's a massive gap, a massive failing within this perceived decolonial thinking on campuses if they can't, number one, recognize the political reality in Syria, which is that significant numbers of Syrians support their government and are resisting an attempt by our own country to overthrow that government. And secondly, that, um, yes, our government is illegally involved in Syria. It's illegally involved militarily. It's illegally involved politically, funding various opposition groups, and it has groups like the White Helmets and these kind of non-state actors which are funded by states and being sheltered by Canada. So why can't anyone do anything about that? Why can't anyone speak on, uh, you know, show what the Syrian perspective is or bring speakers who have talked to Syrians without running into so much opposition. There's this huge gap in, in this alleged decolonial thinking. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and there's a reason why they've uh, chosen, you know, why a lot of academics have chosen to use this 
what for me anyway, I, I don't know, I might be alone in this, but it sounds to me like a really bizarre and novel term, decolonial. Um, you know, uh, a few years ago and certainly decades ago, people weren't saying I'm decolonial. They were saying I'm anti-colonial or anti-colonialism. Uh, decolonial sounds like another of these junky academic terms uh, that's fashioned in a particular way. And there's a reason why they say decolonial rather than anti-imperial. It's because they're not anti-imperial. And their decolonization is limited to a very selective, I mean, a, a very narrow sphere. And it has to do with their own personal identities or the identities of the people that they like. Um, and it has to do with rearranging domestic, social, and economic arrangements so as to uh, better reward or recognize. But ultimately, it's always about, you know, better rewarding particular groups and individuals and so forth. It's a reformist program. And they never want to draw the connections between what has happened locally and what happens internationally. So, for example, and I'll try to be brief because otherwise we could take up the entire time with this, is in the case of Canada, there is a great deal of attention being paid to the history of residential schooling. And there's been a Truth and Reconciliation Commission and so forth. And now everybody is supposed to be talking about residential schooling and, and uh, the kind of pain that it had inflicted and so forth. And, and, and by the way, I'm not disagreeing with any of that. I think it is a very worthy uh, subject to study, and everybody should know about it who doesn't. The thing about it, though, is as and I and I explain this in the article in the West, but you know you could say this about any group of people. We work with a finite number of cultural materials. We're not as innovative and inventive and creative as we like to tell ourselves. There's a lot of self-flattering garbage that we tell ourselves to feel better. The point of the matter is that we deal with a limited set of cultural materials. And the second point is that those cultural materials are slow to change. What you'll find with residential schooling is not that it's ended. It has not ended. It has ended in a specific institutional sense here in Canada, but it's been globalized. It's a template that we use and we apply to others. So the rest of the world is our school. We're the missionaries. We're there to teach them, and should they resist our teachings... Well, that's when the beatings come in. And we feel quite free in delivering those beatings. Beatings for Syria, beatings for Libya, beatings for Iraq. And we seem to have, at least some of us seem to have, very little problem with that kind of continuation of colonialism on the international level. And the continuation of, you know, translations of racism. If it's not literally racism, it's something that is sort of a byproduct of it, such as denying uh, Libyans the right to speak for themselves at the UN, you know, as has been done, where their representatives were simply, and I don't even know that this is legal, they were simply denied the right to answer any of the charges and accusations in 2011 uh, that led up to the military intervention. Imagine that. I mean, the stakes that are involved are war, 
And the target nation is not allowed to say a word on its behalf. And I mean, we all sat by and watched this, right? Presumably, we're all aware of it. So we have that kind of colonialism. We have also the sort of colonialism that continues where we're willing, it seems, to believe anything that is said about what used to be called, you know, the third world. The third world, its people and its leaders especially. Sadistic sadistic, sorry, evil, monstrous animals. You know, this is a language that is in use right now. And I'm not hearing objections from the decolonial left saying, hey, listen, this is not the way to speak of foreign leaders as if they're animals and subhumans. It's simply not acceptable. It's inaccurate. It's wrong. It deforms a discourse. It leads to poor decisions, heavy costs, and so on. You don't hear any of that. As a matter of fact, what you hear is that if somebody objects to that kind of discourse, how are they labeled? Assad apologist. Uh, when it came to Libya, I remember a few years ago people saying, oh, he's an apologist for Gaddafi. Um, you know, or he's on the payroll, because you know, for North Americans, what really matters the most in the end is money, so they always have to invoke the payroll. Um, but in any case... You have that kind of uh, attitude that is still strongly implanted, and you see all these petitions. Well, you know, there aren't, there aren't many. It's just a couple that I'm aware of personally. Uh, petitions being signed that are basically calling for more U.S. intervention, you know, for regime change, for democracy building, for promotion of the Syrian Kurds, and so forth. And, you know, you look at the list of signatories, and you see some of the top names that we know of as Marxist academics, as feminists, anarchists, and so forth, a whole range of people uh, along the left that have signed on. And what I say in the, in, in, in the article, um, and you know, it may not be something people want to hear or like to hear, but what you see happening now is an old marriage, or the flames of an old love, if you want to be lyrical, being reignited. It's not that this is the first time. This is one of a number of times. You know, it happened in the 1920s and 1930s, especially in Europe and so forth, where you have an alliance between the left, between those who call themselves socialists, and their imperial states. And there is a term that was used for it. You know, it's not very much in vogue now. It should be. It has a hell of a lot more meaning to it than decolonial. Um, and that is social imperialism. Uh, you might even call it socialist imperialism, but the social imperial, uh, imperialism is the, is the way it's written about in academia. Um, so, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't mean to take up all of the time, but, uh, oh, yeah, there was something else I, I, I wanted to add, and it comes out of what you said. I'll, be, I'll try to be brief. Um, it has this, uh, you know, part of this discourse, and it is a colonial discourse that we're engaging in. It's, you know, refurbished. Is this notion that you can reduce, reduce Syria to a regime, and the regime can be reduced to one person, Assad, and Assad can be reduced himself. Uh, he's not a human, he's a monster. You know, or we say, he's evil. Um, we're using the language, you know, that is taken out of theology now, language that is better left in the Bible. Um, he's evil. 
I don't know any human being who's evil. I don't know any human being who's perfectly good either, but evil is a really, really heavy word. We tend to reserve that word for, you know, entities like Lucifer, not human beings. So you see the kind of hyperbole that is built in it, and it has a sanction of theological authority. It doesn't matter if these people think of themselves as secular and atheist and so forth. It's a particular cultural background that makes use of the term evil, uh, legitimate, thinkable, possible, and so forth. So sorry for going on so long. I understand what you're saying, especially having read the article a few times. It's obvious that we've fallen a long way since the time of the Bandung Conference. Uh, you know, oh, what, for sure. You know, go back several decades after World War II when they recognized how dangerous it was to go to war and invade people, but also the fact that the colonized people of the world need their own political representation. That the states, whether Kenya, Namibia, Cuba, China, and so on, they all needed to be respected on the international stage. And in that if you wanted to engage with China in some capacity, engage with Cuba in some capacity, engage with Syria in some capacity, trade, military, political, whatever, you had to talk to them, their representatives, their government, no matter what kind of government it was, because it's no longer in the hands of the French colonialists and the French Empire and the British Empire and America and its protectorates and so on, that you have to respect these countries, because if you don't have an international framework and a legal order by which these countries are respected, then they will be trampled on. And, and it relates to a concept you brought up about the U.S. as a neoliberal policeman, and I'll get to that. But what you said about not allowing Libya to speak, when the propaganda for the war and invasion was being prepared against Libya, they were not allowed to speak. This is not the first time this has happened. Under this new order, if you look at uh, especially Yugoslavia, or before that, Rwanda. Anyone who's in the docket, even figuratively, are no longer allowed to defend themselves. The way they treated Milosevic, the way they treated other people in the former Yugoslavia, they criminalize opposition to neoliberal globalization. If you're not part of it, if you're the former socialist state of Yugoslavia, and they want to come in and break you up, and you have a differing opinion, it doesn't matter, because you're a criminal now. You're a war criminal, you're a monster, you're a butcher, right? And you're, the state becomes the leader, and the leader becomes the monster, so the state becomes the monster, the people become the monster, until we can go and clean it out, until we, the empire, can sort them out. So this is an ongoing process by which the, the U.S.-led order in particular is saying, if you don't agree with us in the way we're doing things, you have no political representation. You have no legal representation. And if you go into court, it's going to be a kangaroo court that we control. So that's the, the way things are right now. And this is what happens when you get rid of these international legal and political structures. You called the United States a neoliberal policeman. So even though we allegedly live in this Francis Fukuyama order in which, uh, you know, the world is flat, history is over, Everyone's on the same economic territory. You can freely exchange on the market, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the problem is, in order to enforce this, there are still mechanisms. And it, it so happens that some countries are more powerful than others. So the United States, de facto, with its military power as the leader and controller of NATO, it becomes the, the neoliberal policeman, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. I mean, this is one of the oddities about globalization. Well, it's not really odd. It can seem that way if you take the propaganda at face value. You know, but it didn't come out of nowhere. 
it's not the inevitable outcome of uh, of a human evolution or anything like that. Um, which were the interests that were that were behind pushing uh, for what we call globalization? Well, typically we talk about corporations and so forth. Yeah, corporations are certainly there. But, you know, corporations have a limited amount of power when it comes to the ability to impose their wishes on, on the rest of the world. States, you know, which are in many ways the target of globalization um, and state power itself, because the idea is to trim state power down to its bare minimum, you know, law enforcement. But states themselves were very much active in pushing globalization, you know, by revising or introducing new legislation, uh, by setting up new trading arrangements, military alliances, uh, educational exchanges, you know, the, uh, the whole range of activities. And among those states, there's one that is particularly powerful, and that's the United States. So if there's going to be a law enforcer, it's going to have to be the United States. But this law enforcer, and this is something that now a number of Americans have realized. Um, they've realized, uh, and they're angry about it, and they want some sort of change. What has happened is that the United States is meant to enforce this particular order. It's not there to necessarily enforce the wishes of Americans. You know, the wishes of Americans, most Americans don't want to be involved in all of these different foreign military adventures. So it can't be their wishes that are being enforced. Um, so th even the U.S. military, for example, is not really meant to act on behalf of the interests of all Americans. And this is the, one of the funny things that has come out in the last few months, is a kind of hollering that you hear today about this notion that the U.S. government is sending troops to its own border. Uh, you can debate anything you want about how the United States handles refugees, ought to handle refugees, and so forth. I'm not really interested in that particular aspect. I'm interested in this notion that it's somehow wrong for the United States to have its own troops on its own soil at its own border. You see, they can't accept that, but they can accept those troops being in Syria. How the hell do you manage to reconcile such an obvious contradiction? Um, if they can't be on, you know, at their own border, why should they be in Syria? Well, the notion is that, well, they're always meant to be somewhere else. They're not meant to be here. They're always supposed to be in motion in basically canceling out sovereignty here, there, and everywhere else, not in defending sovereignty. So, you know, the United States doesn't have the right to uh, dictate who is allowed to cross its borders, according, you know, to uh, opponents of the current administration. The United States doesn't have the right to dictate who can cross American borders, but it does have the right to dictate who can cross Syrian borders. So, for example, it has a right to insert its own presence in, into Syria. The United States has that right. Uh, Russia and Iran and so forth, they don't have that right. Well, how is it that they don't have that right? Well, because they were invited by, there by the Syrian government, and that's the problem. There is no Syrian government that we're willing to recognize as legitimate, and there's really no Syrian soil either. Um, so, the, you know, by default, 
the Russians and Iranians are there illegitimately, whereas we're the only ones who are there with any kind of legitimacy because it's something that we've bestowed upon ourselves. So this is, these are some of the interesting contradictions that are coming out right now. Um, I don't know if I've gone off track or if um, I might not well, be addressed. No, this is, a, this is very thought-provoking or should be to people because, yes, there is this sort of sense, especially among people calling themselves progressives or opposition to Trump or resistance that, well, yeah, the U.S. shouldn't uh, deploy troops in the United States. However, it's fine and should, in fact, be deploying troops in Syria and elsewhere. Uh, the people that are attacking Trump for talking about putting troops on the border with regard to refugees are often the very same people saying, why aren't those troops in Syria? Why aren't there more troops in Syria? Is Trump seriously talking about withdrawing troops from Syria? Is he nuts? So there is a contradiction in that respect. And, you know, just seeing it on its own with regard to sovereignty and nation states, it is very interesting where we've ended up on this issue. Yeah, no, because if, you know, one really were to take uh, a position that could be described as anti-imperialist, you should be glad about the United States keeping its troops at home within its borders. Um, you know, stay there. Stay at home. That's where they belong. Uh, they certainly don't belong in Syria. That's someone else's country, right? Um, and the idea is also that in the reality is that when they're abroad and they're actively engaged in warfare, what they're doing is creating new waves of refugees. Um, which... Well, you know, this has been a very frustrating issue, of course, yeah. because there is so much concern over the issue of refugees, and it's become an issue that's been stratified among liberal and conservative thought. And conservatives uh, have often taken a heartless view that look at these people, who cares if they're coming, they're coming here to do this or that damage, and let's make sure they don't get anything, let's all keep them out. And on the other hand, there have been liberals saying, oh, well, let's, let's open our arms to everybody, let's open our borders, have no borders, let's have no border patrol, no border guards, just the idea of looking at refugees and inspecting them coming in is a hate crime. If we want to ask the government to just make sure that the people that are coming in there are not involved in armed conflict... What you're missing is an anti-imperialist perspective, which is saying we should be compassionate towards refugees. We should be very compassionate to people with regard to the situation we have created as Canadians, as United States citizens with this war uh, that on, on a number of Middle Eastern and, and African countries. So if we care about migrants and we care about refugees, why don't we stop creating migrants, stop creating refugees, exactly. st stop changing the borders of countries, stop treating them as if they're made of clay, stop treating people as if they're just little pawns in an agenda. It's not a great thing. It's not something to celebrate if people have to gather up their belongings in a backpack and get their family members together and flee their burning house and go to some strange country with different weather and they don't speak the language and some people are friendly and other people are not. This is not something to celebrate. What we should be doing is creating stability and saying stop destabilizing Syria, stop destabilizing Libya, stop destabilizing a variety of other countries, including Iraq and Yemen and so forth and create a situation where those countries can rebuild and people can come back to their homes and their livelihoods and use their talents and resources to rebuild the countries that we have destroyed, probably with getting help from us. We need to stop the actual problem that we're creating instead of causing more and more waves of migrants, which we then celebrate and pat ourselves on the back for saying how great we are because we're such a generous country. 
That's right. And then, and, and then in the end, you know, our generosity is actually pretty limited in reality. But, you know, and, and even those who can, who, who, who cross borders as refugees are themselves, um, you know, a narrow, uh, part or a select part of a much larger group. They're the ones who can afford the means uh, to travel a particular distance and so forth. So, you know, there's a bit of a selection process that is going on there. You're not accepting everyone uh, who, who is in need. You're accepting some of those who have the ability to make their presence felt and, and, and not more than that. And I agree, you know, the, if you're really concerned about the problem, stop creating the problem. Uh, but don't celebrate the problem. If there are some that are celebrating the problem, um, it's not necessarily because, you know, they're crazy and dumb. Um, again, it might be true in some cases, but it's largely because, you know, they have a, an interest vested in the very existence of refugees. You know, certain humanitarian activists, this is part of their career. Uh, they will find themselves in paid positions, for various NGOs or government agencies, you know, a need is created for certain experts, adjudicators, social workers, and people who provide assistance and so forth. You know, there a whole apparatus has to be created there, um, and it has to be staffed. So there are people who have a vested interests in ha- interest in having refugees coming in because it creates a need for these specialists these bureaucrats and so forth. It creates, you know, justification for their salaries. And so in a way, they wouldn't be too happy to see that problem being diminished. Um, Otherwise, they're out of a job, right? So (laughs) um, there's also that aspect to consider. Uh, But yeah, go ahead. Before we go, there is one other issue, and it relates directly to your article, and it's a very bothersome issue, I find, you talk about this sort of imperialist moral economy. A moral economy, I guess that's like a way of framing and understanding conflicts by exchanging opinions and media or whatever. You can talk about that, but basically there's an environment now where certain types of media have become a commodity in information warfare. Okay, so people circulate certain types of images or articles um, or thoughts that bolster their position and are thought to weaken their opponent's position on the issue of Syria and the things that are being debated there. So one of these commodities, you know, gruesomely enough, is dead baby photos. You know, photos of dead babies can be used to show that side you support in Syria is on the right side and that the other side, the one presumably killing the babies, is wrong, you know, and this is very grim, uh, gruesome, and, and morbid. Um, it's mostly the regime change-oriented folk that are doing this, but there's also anti-imperialists being guilty of doing I've I've done it myself when I talked about the Palestinian boy who was beheaded by those so-called rebels in Syria. And you know, it, this is not the best way to discuss the conflict, you know, because if you're using these photos and the death counts that are being thrown around, it evades the main issue here, which is... What is causing this conflict, you know, which is our own imperialism sparked and maintains that conflict. That includes Canada's involvement. We are the main reason, the U.S., Canada, France, alliance and with Qatar and the Saudis, that the conflict in Syria continues and is perpetuated. So you know, instead of going bonkers over the symptoms of the war, 
and saying, well, your side is worse because it killed more children. This side is worse. You should be saying, what caused this conflict? Why are people fighting in Syria? Who is putting people into Syria? Who is putting weapons into Syria? Who is delegitimizing the government of Syria and preventing negotiations? Right? Who is making sure in every way possible that this conflict in Syria continues? Because only if that question is answered or addressed can the conflict end. And, and instead, people just circulate these... Um, provocative photos and other forms of media. That's right. I mean, we're dealing with an economy that is organized on moral principles. And, and wh why moral principles? What's, what is it with all this moralism, all of this uh, sort of calculated orchestration of emotions and emotional responses of people telling you, you know, not just what to think, but how you should feel about a subject? You know, something that always makes you very, very suspicious of where the person is coming from and what they're trying to sell. Uh, others instead, unfortunately, fall for it. Um, the reason why there's an emphasis on morality is precisely to depoliticize the subject matter. Subject matter, which is, you know, fundamentally political. You try, you depoliticize subject matter when you want to pretend that certain interests and quest for power are somehow not, not, not in the picture. Uh, we intervene because, you know, we're good human beings. Uh, and that's what good human beings do. They do something. Um, bad human beings, those are the ones who don't want to do anything. You know, they're isolationists, you know, like those people over there in the corner mumbling to each other, those dirty, sly isolationists, you know, don't go over there, don't talk to them. Um, this is the level at which the discussion takes place. It's kind of infantile. You know, it's not, certainly not meant to illuminate. It's not meant to raise uh, the people who are the target of these sorts of messages. But the idea that is uh, happening, you know, the basic idea of this moral imperialist economy is that you're trying to create a, uh, create a relationship, a relationship that involves a transfer of capital, you know, ultimately a transfer of capital, a transfer of value. And the way you do that is that you look at the rest of the world outside of North America and Europe. Say so the rest of the world is a sea of problems. And the people in that world, all they do is produce problems. Well, what about us? Well, we're the solutions. We're the ones who bring peace to the world. We're the ones who are going to fix the world. The world can't fix itself. We'll fix it for them. So we invent all kinds of phrases about chaos prevention and atrocity prevention and responsibility to protect and so on and so forth, because it's part of that basic uh, asymmetrical relationship that we create precisely to transfer value, you know, to accumulate value for ourselves. Um, so that is one of the basic ideas of the, of the moral imperialist economy. And, you know, you mentioned there are certain commodities that are used as a dead baby photo. Uh, the dead baby photo is like a license to print money. You know, you can generate these things. You can even fabricate them. Um, and it's a way of printing money in the sense that it heightens the value of your particular cause, 
It invites investment by very powerful patrons, let's say like the United States government. Here are these dead baby photos, and you have Donald Trump saying, oh my God, did you see those photographs of the beautiful babies, such beautiful babies, all dead, and you know, we have to intervene for that reason. Um, and it all gets reduced to a baby photo, and it creates a kind of demand for that photo. Now, So now you have a sort of commerce in these photos, what I call humanitarian trafficking, right? Um, slightly different from but related to human trafficking. Here we're trafficking in images that boost the humanitarian cause. Um, so all of that is, is part of it, too. And I wish more people would be thinking in terms of, you know, this uh, moral imperialist economy uh, that is taking shape. Um, and also, uh, uh, you know, finally, uh, if you don't mind my adding, this idea that, you know, Syria is always called upon to answer for itself uh, and to answer to us, because that's part of the asymmetrical relationship. You know, we don't answer to Syria. I've never been called upon by a Syrian to explain to them how it is that I think I live in a democracy and how I might change it. You know, change it to suit interests in Syria. So that, not, that discussion never happens. But the reverse happens all the time. You know, Syrians have to account to us for, are they democratic? Uh, are they really socialist? And my attitude is, is sort of indifferent. Let's say it's not democratic. Let's say it's not socialist. So what? What do you do about it? You're going to destroy it as a result? I mean, is that the answer then? The answer is violence. Because ultimately, that is the response that you get. They're not abiding by our cherished principles, therefore violence. That's a very dangerous world. And it's a world with a very short lifespan. <laughs> yes, well, I have to agree. I mean, on the one hand, I very much appreciate the efforts of Stephen Gowans, for example, who has looked at Syria's economy to look at the socialist elements within there in order to counter propaganda that was intended to demobilize elements of the left and the anti-war movement. That's valuable work. But as you say, ultimately, that's not the main question. You know, whether Syria, for example, is socialist or not socialist or democratic or not democratic is not the main criteria by which we choose how we interact with regard to an intervention. If the United States, Canada, France, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and so on are inserting their own military forces into Syria, you know, if they are giving weapons to actors within Syria and telling them to overthrow the government while launching an international demonization campaign to delegitimize that government and prevent negotiations with that government, primarily our job is to prevent that from occurring in the first place. And it's not supposed to rely simply upon whether that country meets our specifications of being worth defending. You know, it would be truly appalling if we all just put our hands in our pockets and just sort of stood around. If the U.S. was beating up on some country, but it wasn't socialist, it wasn't democratic, therefore we don't care. That, that is how that issue has been manipulated by some very dubious people to try to say, oh, well, it's, it's not like that. So don't, it's not worth defending. Don't have an anti-war march. Don't put up signs. Don't carry placards. Uh, it has to be a certain way in order for us to defend a country. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and that's exactly what the, one of the purposes of that kind of um, argument is. It's meant to demobilize. Um, you know, you're not supposed to defend Syria because then that means you're uh, an Assad apologist and so forth. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I think you're, you're definitely on the right track there.
what you've been doing here in this article in particular is reducing the infantilization of this issue. Um, as I've said before, the powers that be, the corporate media and so on, want to talk about Syria, not just as a blank slate, but also as a place full of monsters, a place run by a demon called Assad, a place of screaming children demanding our intervention. It's very juvenile, and it's a script they've used before, and really, we have to move beyond this. And when the United States is talking about some other country, going into some other country, we have to move beyond the way that they try to erase a region, erase a people, erase a history, erase what's going on, you know, and giving us a few selected actors in substitution for that. And we have to say, no, I don't care what you say is going on there. You do not belong there. If they did not invite you there, you are not there. And yeah. that's the attitude we have to promote. And I think you've done a good amount of work in helping to promote that idea and turn things around slowly in terms of the discussion on this issue. So very much appreciate it. Your article certainly got around and we'll be providing a link to it on the online copy. So thanks for writing that and thanks for, for being here to discuss it with us today. No, thank you. It's been my, uh, my genuine pleasure, Brendan. Thanks for inviting me.